We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 322. Our guest today is the founder of Return to Freedom, which is a nonprofit that's dedicated to the preservation and conservation of America's wild mustangs. It was founded in 1998, and Return to Freedom is located in Santa Barbara County, where they provide care to over 400 incredible wild horses and burros throughout 350 acres. Our guest is an absolute powerhouse. Robert Redford serves on the board. She has garnered the support of many passionate individuals, such as Ed Harris, Viggo Mortensen, along with creative collaboration with Native American tribes and all types of people who support and love wild horses. So without further ado, please welcome our guest today, Netta DeMeo. Hi, Netta. Hi, Bethany. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on and giving us this opportunity to talk. Absolutely. Well, I'm so excited to hear about Return to Freedom, but first tell me a little bit about how you first got started in the horse world. Um, Well, (laughs) I grew up in Connecticut and my first word was horse and my mom said, I I don't even remember that. I don't even know how that happened. Maybe I had one of those baby mobiles above my bed, (laughs) I don't know, but I, I, I really don't. I don't remember not loving horses. You know, it's one of those things where I think a lot of us that love horses just um, come into come in with that, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're magical. And I think they always, you know, inspire our dreams and, um, you know, the the mythology around it and they're magical. So Mm -hmm. I I think that that started and I began riding at four years old. Because my mom had to find some way for me to be near horses. I wouldn't right. stop. I was relentless. <laughs> so I started riding. <laughs> yeah. And in Connecticut, you know, you're you're doing hunter jumpers pretty much at right. that time. This was, you know, back in the sixties. So found a really sweet barn and and a and a British woman who had some hor- lovely horses and taught riding lessons. And I remember I used to sit and stare at her horses in their eyes, especially this black pony that looked kind of like an Icelandic at the time. I remember looking for the wild horse in his eyes. You know what I'm saying? And so I was always looking for wild horses in our neighborhood and down by the train tracks and in the apple orchard. And, um, you know, we lived in a suburban area at that time. And later I moved, uh, we, my family and I moved to three acres up in a more rural area and I got my first horse at eight years when I was eight years old and we brought a, a little Shetland pony that used to run wild in the neighborhood uh we 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 bought ginger as well for fifty dollars to keep um Sam my horse company oh wow <laughs> so- so, you know, we'd ride to the horse shows, but mostly I trail, I would, tra- I rode every single day. I would ride before the bus picked me up for school and I'd jump on my horse immediately after. And way back then, back, back, way back then in the sixties, late sixties, my mom got involved with exposing and protesting against Burger King for using horse meat. So wow. my sister and I would tie, we tied little signs around our horse's tails and it said, please don't eat me. And we'd, we'd ride around 
um, shopping centers and things like that. <laughs> wow. I did not know that about Burger King. Yeah. Oh, so, gosh. you know, fast forward, it's no, no wonder that, you know, that has been my passion, um, starting with ending horse slaughter. And when I was about five years old, I saw wild horses being chased and captured on television. I, it must've been a Western movie or mm -hmm. I have no idea what, but I remember just feeling completely trapped and panicked and upset. And I started yelling at my mother, you know, I was really little cause I can remember holding my little blanket, you know, and wow. turning around and yelling at her and said, when I get older, I'm going to, I'm going to give them a place to, you know, to, to be safe. And so it was, I always laugh and I say, you know, uh, return to freedom was really started by a five-year-old. So. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> you know. love that. That's so cool. Well, you founded return to freedom in 1997 what did you feel right. like? Obviously, so many things led up to that moment. But what do you feel like was like the the final straw that prompted you to create an organization dedicated to wild horses? That's a great question. It was a number of things, but I think it was um, I had been living a beautiful, you know, I had always been doing what I wanted to do. I, I went on, you know, I traveled, I backpacked, I did a lot of things for a while. I wasn't around horses. And then I got back into horses, you know, because I was traveling and I had uh, gotten involved in fashion design and theater and things like that. And I just remember I was living in Los Angeles and I was, um, you know, going through an amicable divorce, but we, you know, my life was changing. And every time I, I turned on, I knew that, you know, what I had shelved until later, you know, growing up, I said, when I get older, I'm going to have a sanctuary, mm -hmm. you know, what I do. so I realized like, you know, this is the time, like this is it. And so I just remember every time I turned on the television, there was something going on exposing canned hunts and all kinds of horrible, abusive, you know, situations with animals regarding, you know, management, including the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management's their their management of our wild horses and burrows on our public lands and the associated press in the early 90s was doing a lot of exposure about the um you know corruption in the bureau of land management program and many wild horses were being captured and slipped out the back door to slaughter they were suffering horrible abuses and it just you know it was like the horror of of everything you saw in the misfits and what you read about, you know, in the seventies and then the eighties, you know, well, the seventies um, and earlier happening. And it was just, I, I just got so angry and I had been, um, you know, living a more, you know, meditative life. I was in a, uh, on a spiritual journey of sorts and an artistic one. And I remember having this moment of going, you know, I'm either going to go off to the jungle and disappear like in Belize or something to be around nature and animals because that's where my passion is. Or, you know, I'm going to do something with the wild horses, with sanctuary, finally. Wow. Um, it was just coming at me and I just couldn't get it out of my head. And so I didn't want to be angry. I realized that, you know, being carrying that around isn't productive. It's not mm -hmm. good for you. For one thing, it's not good for you, but it also wasn't you know when you're having conversations because i was always a vegetarian growing up and all that and i remember yeah. being very very you know on my soapbox about it and really strong about it and i realized like i was turning people off more than i was educating people hmm. and so 
you know, so that was sort of a, you know, maturing and growing older. I thought, you know, I thought if I'm going to do something, it's really got to focus on education. And I dove into the issue to understand the politics of it. And I said, oh, boy, I, you know, people get killed over this stuff. These are the range wars you're fighting. You know, these are the wars over our natural resources, the use of our public lands, grazing, water and the above. And you're up against a very, very, you know, powerful, you a few powerful industries that are using our public lands for energy extraction and, and you know, uh, lives, private livestock raising and, and all of the above. And I thought, oh, I don't I don't want to get political. But as you go down that road, you realize that the only way to make real positive change are twofold. It's educating the public so that they have the tools and the knowledge to use their voice um, and then number two is politics, is changing policy. And so working with government agencies is laboriously slow. And it's been one heck of a journey. And I don't know if we're going to see, you know, what we want in our life, in my lifetime. But the, the but we have gotten the ball rolling um, in a direction to hopefully have some more inclusive conversations with all stakeholders on our public lands. And that's sort of where we we were heading. And so the sanctuary created in 1998, we opened our doors in California, Return to Freedom's American Wild Horse Sanctuary was created as a model to explore different alternatives to roundups and for, you know, selling horses, killing horses, all those kinds of things. And so we were able to get involved. I knew people that were, I knew someone actually, Jim Clapp, who started the first wild horse sanctuary in Shingletown, California. And he had previously been a government trapper. And then he saw, you know, all these horses, he was, he gathered them up with the forest service back in the seventies and they shot them all. And he was so devastated. Him and his wife, Diane created the wild horse sanctuary. And that's where I started going to become educated and, you know, he was doing, he was hired to gather horses off of the Sheldon and the Heart Mountain Refuge in Oregon. And they, he said, would you take some? I said, and I was just about to buy this 300 acres to start the sanctuary. And I said, only if you can keep them in their original family bands and their bachelor bands and relocate them intact Mm -hmm. in the sanctuary. And that's what we did. And they were gathered on horseback. So we were able to do that. And then we did it again in 2000 with the Sheldon Refuge Uh, fish and wildlife refuge removals at that time fish and wildlife did not have a waiver to use helicopters unlike bureau of land management so the horses were gathered on horseback and we were able to relocate them and they at least had their uh, family bands and then their larger herd community together and relocated to the sanctuary so that we could then open up uh, nature's classroom basically for people to do sensitive observation and one thing led to the no- another. And of course, then you have to look at management. How do we manage population growth? And I met the late Dr. J. Kirkpatrick in um, Montana. He runs the Science and Conservation, sorry, the Science and Conservation Center. And we started using fertility control, similar to what immunocontraception. It's somewhat reversible and it's not hormonal. And we were um, implementing the same program as they did in the acetique. And that's what we do. And so that's so that the mayors and the stallions can hang out and what foals slip through because some mayors don't, you know, respond to the fertility control. 
you're able to witness the the roles within the family bands and then their relationship to the larger herd community. They're social mammals like ours. They're sentient beings. And that was the foundation of our educational platform. And all of that became the foundation of our advocacy and lobbying efforts to change policy in Washington. Wow. You have two properties in California for Return to Freedom, correct? Correct. Is there a difference between the two sanctuaries? Well, um, tell me a little bit for for someone who maybe isn't familiar, um, what they are like and and how you kind of run the two properties to really provide a safe place for these horses. Yeah, thank you. Um, the first we started on a ranch that my parents and I and my sister purchased in uh, 1998, mm-hmm. and it was a pretty wonderful thing. It was a way for my parents in their eighties to move out West and be near us. And then to share this last, you know, chapter of their life being part, as my father said, being part of something bigger than myself. And it was very fulfilling and it was really, you know, precious time with the family, right? Hmm. They're gone now. And um, that was just 300 acres in um, Lompoc, California. And it's a bit like Middle Earth there. It's very magical, very beautiful, very green right now with all the rain we just got in the winter. Um, But we quickly outgrew it on 300 acres. It really lends itself more as a for educational programs. But you're, you know, you know, (laughs) it quickly became too small. So, gosh, in the in the in 2014 and and thereabouts, we had such bad drought that the um, we had a hard time with water on that ranch and we had some donors that had purchased 2000 acres up in San Luis Obispo and they invited us to graze that ranch for free. And it was just a passion of, of one of the owners, um, the wife and been an incredible relationship. And that's the Carlson family. So uh, Steve and Leslie Carlson invited us up and they're partners with uh, Steve's brother, Richard, and of course, Stephen Leslie's daughter, Kristen, and they've been the most, it's been so generous and it's such a beautiful property. So we moved horses there. We moved about 40 horses there in 2015. So here we are in 2023, our 25th year anniversary of opening the sanctuary. And we are, you know, really working hard to implement what I am very excited about, which I think is the only way to really manage and save the West from desertification. And that is uh, working with kind of holistic range management based on the savory method of Alan Savory's work. And it's just been proven time and time again with people who I know I'm looking at their ranches and the results, and it's been a game changer. And you're really, you know, looking at the way that we manage our animal animals in general, but even on our public lands too, which is very fragile ecosystems. You know, it's been mismanaged since before the 1800s with sheep coming in and really degrading it. And then later, you know, barbed wire went up to really cut off wildlife corridors and everything else and fence in large numbers of livestock. So now I'm, I'm waking up to this incredible, um, new the science of really so regenerative soil management just the soil is alive it's living and breathing and you want to keep it healthy and you want it to regenerate especially in these you know drier um, more these drier areas in the west and so that's what we're working on now at these sanctuaries is implementing a more where the horses are moved more naturally as if as they would 
basically if they were large predators still keeping them on the move so that you're keeping the you know you're not overgrazing certain areas and you're not undergrazing other areas and everything we do at the sanctuary we do as a model to show you know hopefully the government will wake up and say look we need to implement this on the range because the ranges are very dry and very fragile and it's hard to get government to change it is but i think that more and more people private in the private sector are waking up to this and it's um it's becoming more and more popular and um, known about because of social media mm-hmm. and the document and the documentary kiss the ground and things like that. Sure. So, so we're really working on that now. That's our focus in terms of land management at the sanctuary and wrapping that of course, into our educational model. Let's take a minute and talk a little bit about tack cleaning because it's not just about having clean tack, right? It's also about the health and well-being of your horse that comes in contact with your tack and having beautiful healthy tack that really lasts for a lifetime because our tack is always quite an investment. So I want to talk to you a little bit about Sterling Essentials because it's one of my favorite tack cleaning products. It's premium all-natural essential oil powered leather cleaner and leather conditioner and what I really love about it is that there are zero toxins or harsh chemicals um, counterproductive ingredients Um, so it's just like a really really great purely vegetarian product Um, beeswax food grade ingredients plant-based oils and premium essential oils So not only does it smell amazing, but you can really enjoy the feel of really clean leather without all the sticky leftover cleaning product residue, soap scum, white film, glycerin, or the slipperiness or oiliness that's often caused by other cleaners and conditioners. So for more information, visit their website at sterling-essentials.com. That's S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G-essentials.com. And I also have a promo code if you want to give it a try. So use the discount code Bethany, B-E-T-H-A-N-Y, for 30% off. This does not include bundles and terms apply, so you can see their policies on their website for more information. But I think it's a great opportunity to give some of their products a try. So again, that is Sterling Essentials. I feel like there can be a lot of misinformation when it comes to wild horses in America. What, what, what common misconceptions do you hear about, about in kind of the current state of wild horses? Well, this goes back to what we were just talking about land management, you know, um, everything, everyone, all of us, each living thing makes an impact in some way um, wherever we stand. Yeah. And the horse, every, it's not the horses, the, the horse has been scapegoated for, for centuries, for, for decades, for sure, for um, being the biggest culprit. Every time there's something wrong or sage grouse are, you know, at risk, it's always about the horse, even if the horse isn't even near their nesting areas. We've watched this time and time again with corrupt re- reports basically coming out of government agencies. And we've been privy to getting the information from people that work within the agencies so that we know this is true. But um, even with the facts, even with the math, even with the science, we have, it's been very hard to move the needle. And so I think a big misconception is um, that the horses are the cause of all, all the degradation. No, it's the way we're managing things. And so the animals like the grazing animals like the horse like the diverse cattle groups uh bison etc they they manage correctly they become the solution mm-hmm. they're not the problem wow. they become the solution we need to change the way we're doing things whether it's on private ranches 
or whether it's on our public lands. Um, but the solutions are everywhere. They exist. It's just the willingness to change and um, convincing, uh, well, getting Congress to really hold the, the agencies, various agencies that manage our public and, you know, federal lands and our state lands, holding their feet to the fire on, on change because it's critical. And it's, if it's the horses today, it's going to be their cattle tomorrow and their sheep the next day. And then it's us, you know, so it's this, it has to happen. So it's a matter of, you know, let's just get it done. Let's just do it. And I think there's a way of happening. I see it here. I'm in, I'm in the central coast of California and you see more and more people um, managing their ranches in this way. And even the people that are harvesting animals for food products are, there's a, a humane movement afoot. You know, it's increasing. Um, there's still a lot that needs to be done, a lot that needs to change. And we continue to lobby hard to end horse slaughter in the United States. And even though we stopped the slaughter plants, they the last one closed down in 2007. And since that time, you know, we went from over, gosh, and, 2001, I think there were like almost 2 million horses that were went over, you know, went, went to slaughter. And so to now, today, even though they're getting shipped to Mexico and Canada for slaughter, that's why we need to have a federal bill like the SAFE Act that ends the sale and transport of American horses for the purpose of slaughter. Even with that still happening and it's horrific, it's down to just under 20,000 horses. Mm -hmm. So even with the slaughterhouses closing. So we need to continue the education. And I think that's one of the things that you brought up in the beginning. What do most people, what are they unaware of? Um, or I think we might've talked about it. I think a lot of people in the equestrian community, like similar to when I was young <laughs> to today, mm -hmm. a lot of people still are not talking about the fact that when they sell their horse, they really don't know where it ends up. Right. And the minute the horse becomes, you know, not useful for their purposes, whether it's for sport, entertainment, what, whatever, it, the horse is very vulnerable to this horrible fate. And, and the road leading to slaughter is not a nice journey. They are not put down humanely. They suffer. They often are hoisted up on their back legs while they bleed out. Hmm. And if they're going to Mexico, it's probably even worse. They, you know, um, I'm not going to get into it. It's pretty horrific. And the images won't leave your head. But if you imagine, you know, that we can do this, if the numbers of, quote, unwanted horses, most of which it was discovered, were still healthy horses, right. you know, most of which are healthy horses, um, they're just sort of disposed of. And for us as a nation to think of this cherished animal as disposable, you know, is like, it's unconscionable to me. It's mm -hmm. unconscionable to many of us. And as Robert Redford said, it's wholly un-American. <laughs> you know, right. it's just it's just uh, not American. And I think that when we talk about it as equestrians, I think we need to think about our favorite horses and our favorite moments and all these horses have done for us in our lives, um, um, whether it's winning you know, or whether it's just enjoying the trails or just hanging out in the pasture, whatever joy they brought to us or success they brought to us or, you know, over the centuries carrying us into battle, helping us build railroads and our nations. And I think that we owe it to them to do the right thing. And we owe it to ourselves. Yeah. Because as a nation, for us to steep that low, it's pre pretty bad. 
So I think it's a doable number. I think we all need to wake up. I think people need to breed responsibly and be responsible for the horses they put on the ground because the biggest number I think is still photo horses and thoroughbreds and uh, Arabians that are going to slaughter. Mustangs and burros do end up there, but I think those are the best. Yeah. Do you see a future where wild horses are no longer in danger? Like what would it take for that to become a reality? It's very, very doable. That's what's so frustrating about it. Mm. This is a very, this is such a solvable issue. I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime. You know, there's still a need for sanctuaries, whether it's, I hope that we can solve the issue politically on our public lands. But when you look at the hatred that is in the culture of the ranchers, especially when you go to Wyoming and places like that against the wild horse, they see them as, as trespassers yet they have them on their license plate. You know, it's, um, Hmm. it's a love hate thing. It's, It's a very strange phenomenon, I think. And they see them as trespassers, invasive, non-native, feral, all these terms that in their mind are derogatory. And I think that's really antiquated attitude and it's just built into the culture. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of the people that care about the wild horses are often people that really don't, some of them don't even really know horses, you know, they don't, they, but they have, but they're moved by the plight of this beautiful, almost unicorn. You know what I mean? Mm. I hate to say it, um, but they're mythical. There's something very beautiful about them. They definitely fire up everyone's imaginations and they certainly represent the West and and freedom. And I think, and far off places and all these things. um, But even if you take the romance away from it, the horses can be managed on the range with a minimally intrusive management um, that is now available. The technology is here. We've been using it since, uh, gosh, since 1999. Um, and they're working on longer acting vaccines to, you know, control um, population growth. Our fear as advocates is always that a tool in the hands of people that want to eradicate them will find any way to eradicate them. So we don't return to freedom does not support sterilization. We don't support um, overectomies in the females and the mares. They're very in, invasive. Uh, we support minimally intrusive management necessary to achieve uh, what we want, which is um, healthy wild horses on healthy ranges. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing we all want. But then the devil's in the details. And so when you look at how much of our grazing animal units are given to privately owned livestock versus the horses, it's um, it's there's more given to privately to the permittees for their grazing out there. The other side of that argument is that the horses are out there 365 days of the year while the horses are uh, I mean, while the cattle and, and sheep are only out there for, you know, maybe three months, six months, eight months, nine months, 11 months, but they're all tied to a home ranch. But needless to say, it's just as invasive. Um, it's slightly different. I think that there is a holistic vision that can be implemented. And I think part of it is, you know, looking at this new ways of grazing and also maybe in some areas where needed utilizing the fertility control vaccine so that you are slowing down reproduction. You don't need to sterilize. You don't need to end it. We want to see wild horses out there for future generations, but you know, can you slow it down 
yeah, you know, we can slow it down to protect the horses so that they can be on their ranges that were designated for them in 1971 with the Wild Horse and Burrow Act, one of the most pieces of legislation that went through Congress, both the House and the Senate, with uh, no dissenting votes. So it's been gutted since its inception in 1971. So the horses still have very little protection. There's lots of loopholes. But I think what's at the bottom to answer, I went on a little track there, but really at the bottom of it is what needs to happen is a culture shift. Mm. And, And that's, you know, really America embracing our wild horses. Does America have wild horses? Yes. Are they vulnerable? Yes, they are. They're always vulnerable out there to many things, but they don't have a lot of predators left out there that can take them down because of ranching. You know, we've gotten rid of a lot of wolves and and lions and you'd need quite a lot of them to take down a herd. So Mm -hmm. um, their biggest, um, you know, predator is, is humans. And, um, you know, so while the West stays wild, we want to see it wild. And I think wild horses are, are um, beloved of people mm-hmm. internationally come here to see and enjoy wild horses and bison. I think that that should be the future. And I, I, I we have the technology to do it. And I think I just hope that we have a new generation of people that start getting involved with these um, proactive, holistic um, management tools and also start to work for government agencies so they can make a difference from Definitely. within. Um, yeah. Netta, for people who are interested in learning more so, about Return to Freedom, where do you recommend they go? Oh, well, our website. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. Uh, returntofreedom.org. And please follow us and tell your friends to follow us on at Return to Freedom on Instagram and Facebook. That'd be wonderful. Um, so, yeah, returntofreedom.org. Thank you. Well, Netta, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story. I think what you're doing with Return to Freedom is so important. And for, you know, everyone listening, being like-minded equestrians and horse lovers, I think that this is just like a such an important topic, not only, you know, for us, but for, you know, our country. And so thank you so much for spearheading this and, and everything that you do. I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. I have one thing I forgot to say. I think yeah. people don't realize also is that the horse as a, you know, as a species is native to North America. And a yeah, lot of people don't true. realize that. Yeah. Yeah. So they originated, went through all their adaptations here and wow. we ended up with the one toed horse and it's believed that they disappeared for a time after the last ice age. If that's true or not, I don't know if the story has fully been told yet, but Irregardless, um, they went through all their adaptations and into the modern horse that we know today, uh, Equus cabias, on this continent. So they are native. They are not exotics. And um, yeah, I think that's like an important uh, piece of information that a lot of people don't realize, you know. Definitely. I love that. Well, thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll hear from you soon. Thank you so much. It was great. Thanks, Bethany. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.